I don't know if you guys watch Game of Thrones, and I'm not suggesting you do, just so you know. Although you and you do, I heard you. Um, there's a scene, even if you don't watch the show, there's a scene that was talked about uh, at great length on the internet. It was one of the most uh, popular, maybe one of the most important scenes in all of television history uh, happened uh, last season, where one of the characters, uh, her name is Cersei, and she is not a very nice person. Uh, she was forced by a religious order to shave her head as a sign of penance. And uh, they stripped her of all of her clothing and they forced her to walk through the center of the city while people hurled insults at her and spit at her, spit on her and, and called her names and threw rotten fruit at her. That would, have been, that would have been enough of the scene. But what everybody was really talking about was the lady that was following her. It's this lady. And this lady, uh, we're going to put a picture of her here. This uh, religious figure followed her with a bell, and as she would walk through the streets, this lady's one job was to ring this bell, gong, and say, shame. Gong, shame. With every ring of that bell, Something inside of us flipped. One of these characters that we had so much disdain for, we felt bad for her. We said, what's going on? Nobody should be made to feel that way. Nobody should bring that upon another human being. They even made a phone app out of it, which is quite fun. You should download it. It's fun. You shake your phone. Gong, shame. We've messed around with it on staff, and it's, it's, it's super fun. Uh, but it was horrible. Like, we saw that scene, and, and we empathized. We felt what she was going through. And all of us, I think, in that moment, even if you didn't see it, if you heard about it, you, you, we, we can all understand that nobody wants to live in that perpetual state of, of shame. Sometimes um, I feel like a Hallmark card. Uh, I'll explain it. Uh, by the way, there's this whole line of cards that you can get online called Puritan cards, like these uber-religious conservative Puritan, like if the Puritans wrote Hallmark cards. This is one of my favorites. I thought to write you a love poem. For that thought, I have beaten myself with the rough branch each night hence. <laughs> so just in case you're looking for some good cards. But no, I feel like a, a Hallmark card in that... Uh, I know you do this. We go search for a card. We go to Target or wherever we go to find our cards. And we stand there for, oh, I don't know, 17 and a half hours looking for the right card. And it's never enough. It's never the perfect card. It, it, says, it says something that we end up settling for. But it never says exactly what we want it to say. And sometimes I feel like that. Like there's good things written in my life. But I just wish there was more. Like it just... It doesn't quite measure up. I was actually scheduled to talk about something else on this day, and we talked about it, and, uh, and, and I asked Brad, I said, hey, man, why don't you let me take the shame one, because I resonate with this. And I'm glad in this series that we're doing called What's That Mean, that we're unpacking some of these things that are distractions for us, uh, and finding meaning and understanding who we are and who God is. And I think shame is a huge distraction for us. It's crippling. There's a woman who felt shame. 
She was shamed all the time. We read about her in the book of Luke, chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, starting about verse 36, and if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can. If uh, There's a great uh, uh, app called YouVersion. Uh, you can download that. It's, it's a great Bible app, and if you go under uh, the spot that says more, you'll see a spot that says events, and you can pull up today's message with a bunch of notes and, and the scripture passage. It's fantastic. This woman, I'm going to summarize the story for you in Luke chapter 7. Uh, she comes to a party where Jesus is, and it's being thrown by this guy who's a Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees were kind of the upper echelon of, of uh, religious society. Uh, they were the ones who were the most, you know, they knew the law. They were well studied. And uh, Jesus is at this party, and this woman shows up at this party. And uh, the Bible says she did not have a good reputation in the town. And if you read the message version, then you'll find uh, that she is called uh, the, the town uh, harlot. And she shows up at this party. And we sing, we sing a song about this at, at Lakeside, by the way. There's a song that says, uh, it's by John Mark McMillan, and there's a verse in it that says, uh, when you walk into the room, you know, uh, I can't resist. Every bottle of perfume always ends up on the floor in a mess. If you've ever sung that lyric and you didn't know what it meant, it comes from this story. Because this woman shows up, and she's got a bottle of perfume, and she starts to rub this perfume on Jesus' feet, like clean his feet with this, with this perfume. And, and, and the Bible says, and her tears, by the way. She's crying. She's weeping at the feet of Jesus, and, and she's taking her hair, and she's wiping his feet down with her hair. I mean, she's at the very bottom, and she's at the feet of the Messiah. It's a beautiful scene, right? The Pharisee looks on and says, man, I thought this guy was a prophet. If he was a prophet, he would have known what kind of a woman this is. Not what this woman has done, or, but what kind of a woman she is. He labels her. He names her. He shames her. You've heard of name it and claim it? There's name it and shame it. That's what he was doing. And Jesus says, hold on a second. Let me tell you a little story, Bob. There's a guy who owes 50 pieces of silver. And there's another guy who owes 500 pieces of silver. Neither one of them can pay their debt. But the banker says, I'm going to forgive you of this debt. Now, you tell me, Mr. Pharisee, who is going to be the happiest? The one who only had 50 pieces of silver that he owed or 500? And the Pharisee says, well, duh, it's the guy who owes 500. He had more forgiven, right? Jesus says, exactly. So now you think you're the guy who only has 50 pieces of silver to be forgiven. This woman, you're saying, has a bunch to be forgiven, and indeed she does. But you know what? The deal is, is that I'm willing to forgive straight across the board. And you do not shame this woman. Other people in the crowd, it says in another, in another account, it says that other people were looking on and saying, you know what? What a waste of perfume. I mean, she should have taken that perfume. She should have sold it. She should have given it to the poor. And Jesus says, really? What, because that's what you guys are doing? You're selling everything you have and you're giving it to poor? Come on. He says, the poor will always be with us. This woman has taken something super precious and she's given it to me. She's recognized who I am, which, by the way, is what counts. 
Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Recognizing Jesus is what counts. There's two people on either side of the cross when Jesus is dying. One is spitting on him and hurling insults and, and mocking him. And the other one says, oh, today, when you go into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's all that dude knew. He just recognized Jesus. And that's what's happening with this woman. I wonder what it must have felt like for her to be at the feet of the Savior, the Messiah, this man that she had heard stories about growing up. Which, by the way, do you find it odd that this woman who had such a horrible reputation was allowed into the Pharisee's house and he knew exactly who she was? That's another story. But what must it have felt like for her to be at his feet and to feel that connection with him? You and I are wired for connection. It's just, it's how we're made. We need to be connected to God. We need to be connected to others. We see the connections broken right in the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. When we read the story about the man and his wife in, in the garden, Adam and Eve. It says when they were put there, in Genesis 2.25, it says this, that the man and his wife were naked and unashamed, which, by the way, is my favorite Bible verse to write on a card for newlyweds when I give them a gift. <laughs> I just write the reference. I imagine them looking up to see what words of wisdom Pastor John's going to give them, and then they find that one. Now, this is what happens. They have this encounter. They have this discussion with the snake, the serpent, the devil, the enemy, Satan, Beel's a jerk, whatever you want to call him. And he says, what? You can't eat of that, that tree? What? God's such a crazy old man. He doesn't know what he's even thinking about. You're going to be like him. God's lied to you. You're going to be like him. Don't you want to be like him? And they say, yes. So they eat of the fruit, and boom, they realize that they're naked. They didn't even know what naked was. Who do you think told them that? When God is walking through the garden, he's looking for them. He says, where are you guys? I said, we're over here hiding. Uh, we put some clothes on because we're naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? It was the enemy who told them they were naked and introduced the concept that being naked was something to be ashamed about. That being ashamed of their bodies was something that they should feel bad for. The first time that you and I ever felt shame, that humanity ever felt shame, was in the garden when we said, when we looked down and said, how did that get there? And we put clothes on ourselves and we said, this feels weird. And we cowered and we hid from God. Jesus comes onto the scene. We read in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 1 that he comes and he tabernacles with us. He lives among us. He puts on a tent. He puts on a skin suit. He zip, and he becomes like us. It's amazing that the first place we feel shame is in our bodies. And when Jesus comes to earth, he puts on a body. Shame makes us cower. And God did not introduce shame. That was part of the serpent's bag of tricks. Now, we imagine Jesus putting on skin, having a human form. And even when our artists over the years have imagined Jesus, they imagine him so pretty. 
Jesus is so good looking. I mean, he's got a wonderful beard, which is totally understandable. We get that part. But then he's got like beautiful piercing blue eyes and, and really nice skin. Didn't need proactive. It was just done. It was just, it was right. And long flowing hair. In the early 2000s, an anthropologist finds a skull in the region of Galilee, where Jesus was, uh, from about the time that Jesus lived, and said, let's, let's reconstruct this. Let's put skin on this skull. Let's, let's like, animate this and bring to life what a human being walking around Galilee may have looked like at the time that Jesus was there. He didn't say this is what Jesus looked like, but said, let's just, let's just give you an idea. Now, does that look like Jesus... Like the Chippendales Jesus that we're used to seeing? No. He was just a normal dude. And in, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, we, we learn this prophecy about Jesus coming onto the scene. It says that when he comes, that he's, he's not going to be beautiful in the way that you would be attracted to him by his appearance. No. We're attracted to Jesus because of something much, much different. Not because he looked perfect, but because he's our connection to God. And one of my favorite verses in Scripture uh, follows John 3.16, which is one of the f- most famous verses in the world, right? I just saw it painted on, on a curb over off of Zinfandel the other day, which defacing public property with the Word of God is a totally different thing. We'll talk about it another time. But, but it said John 3.16. But John 3.17 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, saved, rescued, pulled out of the, the muck and mire, brought back into community. God is constantly reaching out to you and I and pulling us into community and saying, I want you to belong. I want to give you a name. Our connections are broken. And make no doubt about it, Jesus came onto the scene to make the connections right. Jesus died specifically for connection. He says, no man comes to the Father but through me. Meaning, hey, everybody, the Father wants you to be part of what's going on. He wants you to be connected to him. And you get to the Father through me. I'm the connection. And he wants to connect us to one another. This is what he does. You know why shaming works? When we shame someone? Shaming works because we threaten to put them outside of the community. When we say mean things, shaming things to people, what we are saying is, you don't belong here. I'm better than you. You belong, you stay out there. Here. You stay there. Now, there's a few people who understand what it means to be outside of a community. By the way, I think we prey on this with reality TV shows. I think we're attracted to a lot of reality TV shows because we see people on the fringes that are living their lives in such a way that we can go, at least that's not me. So you see a show like Hoarders, and you go, oh my goodness, how could somebody live like that? Look at that house. How do they move around? Where do they sleep? How do they raise their kids? It must smell horrible. Well, at least it's not me. 
man, I'm sure glad I live here. I'm sure glad I can see my marble countertop. I'm sure glad that my chrome is nice and shiny at my place. I'm going to throw a party and tell all my friends how awesome it is. How, how often do we stop and say, wait a minute, these are real people. How often do we put skin on these poor souls that we have no clue what their story is? I have a friend whose husband died. One of the, just one of the most precious things in the world was taken from her. And she began not cleaning up her house. That's where it started. And then she never had people over. Like, she stopped having people over anymore. And everybody just thought it was because she was sad and tried to get her to go out and so on. And she was sad. But what was happening in her house is that she was creating a mess. She bought multiple items uh, you know, she'd, she'd buy a, a stove, but she'd buy two stoves because what if one breaks? See, she couldn't stand to live with, with, with that loss because she had experienced such great loss. See how she's feeling a lot more human? One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen is a group of ladies came around her in the church when she confessed what was happening in her, in her house. And they didn't come in and they didn't say, Here's a few good housekeepings for you to read. They didn't come in and say, uh, here's a book that you should read about how to organize. Um, no. They put on gloves, and they went to her house, and they said, let's help you figure this out. And they empathized with her. They got into her world, and they found those, those dead mice that had been hiding behind boxes and stinking up the house and the animal feces, and they helped her decide what she could part with. And they helped her put things back together. And she was, she was feeling so desperate to be part of a community and these ladies loved her in such a very specific way to bring her back in and this is what God is doing. He's saying, hey, your house is a disaster. Let me put on the gloves. I'm right here. There's Few people understand what it's like to be outside of a community more than those who are uh, battling an addiction. We just had a higher power Friday night. We did our preview night for our new recovery ministry here. It's going to kick off September 22nd every Friday night. We had a preview night. We had 87 people come. It was, it was beautiful. Stories were shared. There was this one there that uh, started talking back to the speaker. He started saying things out loud, and, and he had had a little bit to drink before he showed up to the meeting. But the speaker was beautiful, and she kept, I will never forget this, she kept, every time he would say something, she would reach out, and she would say, it's okay, it's okay. And me, I'm antsy in the back going, oh, how am I going to control the situation? And It's okay. It's okay. And people were whispering in my ear, is this going to get out of hand? It's okay. It's okay. And then he stood up in the middle of the meeting at the top of his lungs, said, oh, fireworks and beach balls. That's not what he said. It was, those are replacement words. And 
And, uh, and he walked out, and two men followed him outside and, and loved that dude for an hour, you know, talking to him and coming alongside him. And I thought, that's, that's so beautiful, because we're all in some kind of recovery of some sort. And it was such a, this, this woman was a picture of God for me reaching out and, and saying, it's okay. It's okay. It's a mess, yeah, but it, it's okay. I got you. Spiritual shaming of people, oh, that's the best. He said with every ounce of sarcasm that happens to be his spiritual gift. Spiritual shaming is the kind of thing where you make people feel like you just know more about God than they do. You just want to let them know that, just in case they didn't know. You know more about God. And so you begin your conversations with them with Bible verses or end your conversations with Bible verses, just in case you, know, you want them to know that God is on your side in this conversation. I had somebody approach me once and say, I'm going to ask you a question. The answer that you give me for this question is going to help me determine if you really love God. Here we go. What a great setup, right? So I gave him an answer. I was, I was happy with my answer. He was not happy with my answer. And he walked away uh, from that conversation. Listen, why do we do that? We should know better. Anytime we lord insight over someone else, we shame them. Anytime we say, did you know, and they don't know, and we know that they don't know, we shame them. And, and anytime we use religious code or jargon or, or pull out the God card to one-up somebody, then we shame them. And it's evil. started in the garden. We know the source. It's not something God wants us to participate in. I'm a parent. I've shamed my kids. It's easy to shame our kids, right? Raising kids, by the way, is hard. It's really hard. Like, we're all doing our best, right, Jen? We're all doing our best. But... But we know that at some point in life, our kids are going to end up on somebody's couch talking about us. That's just, that's just the way that it goes around and around and around, right? I have a friend who knows this so well. She said, I told my kids I will either pay for college or therapy, their choice. <laughs> Raising kids is hard. And I realized not too many years ago when I heard words come out of my mouth, go to your room in the way that they came out of my mouth to my daughter, that what I was saying to her was not, let me help you understand or let me give you some wise discipline or let me love you as your father. But what I was saying is, get out of my sight. You just go over there. You don't belong in this community. Not in my living room, young lady. Go to your room. And for me, I was shaming her. Now, 
What I think might work much better for our teenagers is you can't talk to your mom like that. You stay right in this room for the next two hours and talk to mom and dad. Like, how, how would that be? No, the pain, you know, the agony. My parents hate me. <laughs> you know, that'd be a great tactic. My wife and I have been on this long journey of understanding the difference as parents, the difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline sounds a lot like disciple, right? It's supposed to. You come alongside and, and you teach and you discuss. And sometimes our kids, just like us, are going to make decisions that have enough punishment in and of themselves, right? They feel the fallout of it. It's our job to discipline. Like God does, he says a good father disciplines his children, and he disciplines me. There's a difference. All right. So how do we win? How do we break out of this cycle? I think one of the the best weapons, somebody's phone is going off right now. I just thought I'd let you know that. I'm not shaming you. I I just want to say it's a fantastic ringtone. That's all I want to say. <laughs> One of the best weapons against being caught in the shame cycle is empathy. Learning empathy. And I do mean learning empathy. It, it doesn't just happen. You can't just get empathy. You don't buy it at the store. It's not Amazon Prime. I, I wish it were. You have to learn it. You have to lean in. You have to listen to people's stories. And empathy is the kind of thing where you understand where somebody is coming from. You, you begin to see them as human. You begin to put skin on them. You begin to understand that you, as a human being, have within you the, the, the ability to make the same kind of awful decisions that that other person has made or is making. That you have within you the power to be awful. You empathize. You come alongside them. One of the greatest examples of empathy, well, Jesus was a master of this. And in John chapter 4, he's meeting with this woman. He shouldn't be talking to her. He shouldn't be talking to her kind, that kind of woman. People are going to talk. She shouldn't be talking to him. He asks her for a glass of water. They have this conversation, and he begins to tell her, that he knows what's going on inside of her life, all the bad decisions that she's made. Now, that could be potentially shaming, but this is how we know Jesus wasn't shaming. She leaves the conversation, she drops her water, she goes into the town, and she begins to tell people, come and meet a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Now, if she felt shame, she wouldn't run into town and say that. Oh my gosh, I've been exposed. I have so much junk going on in my life. I can't wait to tell you guys about it. This guy knows everything about me. No, what she was saying is come and meet a man who knows my stuff, knows all my duty, and loves me. You've got to meet him. Empathy, giving ourselves to others, giving grace to others. We talk at Lakeside about giving ourselves to others and celebrating life-giving grace as part of our playbook, our modus operandi. Oh, I hope we do that. I don't have a corner on this market. I'm not always great at it. It's something I have to practice. But empathy kills shame. Another thing that kills shame, 
Another antidote for shame is forgiveness. Forgiveness all the way around, forgiving people who have hurt us, forgiving ourselves, understanding that when God says that he made something beautiful in us, that he actually meant it, trusting God in that. We talk about a well-crafted life here, and part of what we talk about when we talk about a well-crafted life is generosity. It needs to be part of our toolbox. What if we generously gave forgiveness and grace? Like, what would that look like? We turn the world upside down. And one of the ways we do this, the book of James says, is that we confess to each other. The Catholic Church does this. You can go confess to a priest, and I'm not even going to say that's a bad thing. Like, I think there's something beautiful about that. I also think that the Bible kind of ups the ante for that and says it's, it's reciprocal, right? It's something that it goes around like this. Johnny, you and I go out, and, and I get to tell you all, all the stuff that's going on here. You, we do this all the time anyway. That's why I picked you. And you tell me the stuff that's going on inside of you. We go, yeah, we're a mess, right? We pray. But there's something that depowers shame of others and shame of ourselves when we confess to one another. Self-shame, by the way. That's the thing. I could sin on this stage in 30 minutes like, like nobody I could sin 50 times over. I could have some spiritual in, uh, inferiority complex. Oh, I'm not good enough. I should have studied more. This is horrible. Why did I say that? I could have some spiritual superiority complex. Man, I'm witty. I'm wise. They love me. I can look out and I can say, that person hates me. I'm getting an email from that one. I could, right? I mean, I could do this all the time. Self-shaming is paralyzing. And true confessions, I do it. By the way, shame is different than guilt. Guilt can kind of be a motivating factor in our lives sometimes, right? So, Bobby, I do something, and I hurt you, and you come to me, and you say, dude, what gives? And I feel guilty. By the way, if I have anything like that, you should tell me. But uh, I feel guilty, and... But then we get it straightened out, and we become better friends for it. Like, that can be a motivating thing. But see, shame is different. Shame is this feeling that I will never, ever match up, no matter what. That I, I'm never going to hit this ideal state that either I've created for myself or that somebody has placed on me. And so I'm just always going to be awful. Shame is this, this feeling that I am not congruent with the rest of the world I'm not in harmony with the rest of the world. I'll, I'll never fit in. Oh my gosh. God does not want us to live there. He's constantly saying, come back into this circle. Come back into this family. The book of Ephesians tells us that, that we're his workmanship created for good works in Jesus. His workmanship, his, like he's, He's whittling us. He's crafting us. He's building us. He's, it, it's like the word poem, the root word, by the way. He's writing a poem where, where his song, where his workmanship. 
Shame is the poisonous opinion that I will never be enough. But when I focus on my shortcomings all the time, I begin to, to miss meaning in life. Focusing on my shortcomings keeps me from finding the deep joy and the abundant life that God wants for me and wants for you. And please hear this from someone who's a self-shamer, right? I hope you don't hear this as me talking at you. Believe me, I'm talking with you. Zephaniah chapter 3 has uh, one of my favorite verses. Verse 17 talks about the kind of God that God is to us. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you and his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. What? We talk about coming in here and singing to God. We're all in one big giant cradle and God's rocking us while singing over us. That's beautiful. Book of Romans chapter 5 says some wonderful things about a place called hope where, where God wants us to be. And it talks about, uh, it talks about coming to God and, and, and things happen in our life. We suffer, but suffer, suffering leads to perseverance and that leads to character and that leads to hope. And then it says this about hope. Hope does not put us to shame. There is no place for shame in a world called hope. And that is where God wants us to be. And then he tells a story here at the end. He says, look, if we were all good, if we all had it together, maybe we can understand why someone would give their lives for us. But, we, but that's not us. We're broken and dilapidated and bent and sideways. And, and God stepped in and gave his life for that. So we need to trust him that he's made something beautiful. And he wants to make it more and more beautiful. Do we have stuff? Yes. we have junk we need to get sorted out? Mm-hmm. But the starting place is that God says, look, you're beautiful. I made you. And now we're going to deal with this stuff. That's a beautiful place to be. He takes delight in you with gladness, it says in that passage. He wants to calm your fears, our fears, he sings over us. And in this place called hope, there's, there's no place for shame. God, we pray for all of us, for ourselves, for everybody in this room, that, uh, that we would understand this, that we would stop shaming if that's our deal, that we would stop self-shaming if that's our deal. We need help. We need to lean into this. We need to learn empathy. We need to learn forgiveness. And those are things that we practice, and we need your strength to do that, God. Thanks for pursuing us and being patient with us. We believe that you do make things even more beautiful. Your word says that you make beauty from ashes. And some of us feel like we're standing in the middle of that building that's just burnt down all around us and those ashes are thick and, and it's hot and it's, we need rescue. We love you. We know you love us 
And you say you love us so much, you like giving us good gifts. So here's what we're asking. This is what I'm asking, God. Please, more and more, can we not just know these things to be true, but can we feel them? I think that's safe for us to ask. I think that's cool. I think you're okay with that. We want to feel it. We want to know deep in our soul that these things are true. So they don't distract us from finding meaning and loving others and loving you and building community and strengthening connections. Thanks, God. Amen.